CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. So I want to start the show uh, today by pointing out that if you're into numerology, February this year is a really cool month for you. Uh, you probably already realize today is 2 2 uh, and in just three weeks, we'll have 2 and that won't happen again until 3 3 <laughs> So uh, numerology fans rejoice in this interesting month of February. Uh, we have so much political news to talk about again on the show today, and we will never get to everything, but we will do our best with a terrific panel, starting with my Wednesday partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Greg Bluestein, political reporter there. And now we can say uh, NBC political analyst. Congratulations on making that uh, happen, Greg. We look forward to continuing to have you on Political Rewind, but also being able to watch you on uh, all of the NBC platforms. Yeah, thank you. The beauty of this deal is I'm not going anywhere. I get to stay in Atlanta and keep on reporting for the AJC, of course, and keep on coming on uh, your airwaves. Makes us happy. Thank you very much for being here, too, Greg. Uh, Representative Mary Margaret Oliver is back with us. You know, I want to point out Mary Margaret. Uh, she's a Democrat from Decatur, as most of you know. The, the panel today, Greg, you, Mary Margaret, and Leo Smith, who I'll introduce more formally in a minute, I, I think it's important to say we've been on the air for like seven and a half years, and the three of you are among the people who have been on this show almost since the very start. And I just every now and then want to acknowledge how much we enjoy and appreciate your participation. Mary Margaret, thank you for being here again today. Good morning. Thank you very much. I'm glad I haven't broken the rules and been thrown out. So I appreciate the opportunity <laughs> to join you. We have had... <laughs> You, you, we have had some rule breakers who have not been invited back. It's true. Leo Smith uh, joins us, Republican political consultant and uh, also the president of Engaged Futures, which does government relations work. And, and also, Leo, uh, you try to work in the nonprofit sector on issues that uh, of diversity and how to bring us all together. How are you doing, Leo? I'm feeling a little historic, historic after that introduction. I hope we're not all dinosaurs, Mary <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's get right to talking uh, about the issues in the news today. Uh, late, late yesterday, the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, passed out to the full Senate um, a measure that Brian Kemp, Governor Kemp, uh, said uh, from the very start of the session when he gave his State of the State, Speech was one of the most important issues this year for him, and that is a bill that will allow for permitless gun, handgun, concealed handgun carry. Uh, Greg, it's an issue that Democrats have fought against, um, but it's on a fast track, it appears clearly. Um, tell us a little bit about where this thing stands today. Yeah, and this might be the biggest rollback of gun restrictions in Georgia in, in decades. <laughs> Um, and this is something that Governor Kemp campaigned on. It became a very important wedge issue in the Republican primary back in, in 2018, whether or not they supported what they call constitutional rule carry. Um, and you're right. It is on the fast track. Um, he opened, This was the first issue that Governor Kemp really outlined and really made a, bit, made, a, made a big deal about 
um, before the legislative session. So this is maybe the top priority, one of the top priorities on his legislative agenda. And it factors very much into the Republican primary he faces because former Senator David Perdue says, were he governor, this would already be the law. Um, let's listen to Senator Jason Anavitardi talking about this yesterday. He introduced this measure. He's the sponsor of it. Here's just a little bit of what he said about why he thinks it's important to pass this bill. Permless carry gives criminals a reason to fear that any potential victim could be armed and thus disincentivizes criminals uh, from conduct. Um, basically, in short, I know there's going to be discussion that this law has the potential to just put all, all, all sorts of new guns and weapons on the streets. And I'll tell you, that's patently false. So, Mary Margaret Oliver, why is that patently false? <clears throat> this effort is a disaster. It is going to endanger, and my thought goes to the four children who've been killed by other children by careless guns around the house or the car. Uh, we have uh, the tragic everyday occurrence of reckless and uh, irresponsible gun users who may or may not have a legal gun in their hand but frequently don't, <laughs> killing somebody. And my thoughts go last week to the six-month-old beautiful baby that we all saw on TV about that shooting. Uh, permitless guns mean that they're at least estimated, there's some people doing real numbers on this, 3,000 criminals, 3,000 people who do not deserve, would not pass uh, any test to get a permit to get a gun. So we are choosing, I won't vote for it, but the Republican message is we're choosing to give thousands more guns to people who today unlawfully would be allowed to carry it. The idea that, I understand the argument that a good guy with a gun, you know, does does some good somewhere, but that daily evidence in my life doesn't show that. Mary Margaret, continue, please. Uh, the daily evidence shows that we have irresponsible gun owners, with or without a legal opportunity, using guns to harm and murder people, <coughs> including children. Um, I apologize, by the way, for if I, I seem to be cutting you off there. I'm sorry for that. Leo, um, I'm, I won't be the first person to point out this kind of odd juxtapositioning between uh, Republicans in, 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 in the legislature, Governor Kemp, uh, Speaker Ralston, and others, who are so concerned about public safety right now, uh, uh, murders in Buckhead, other parts of Metro, Atlanta, of Metro Atlanta, and in cities around the state, and at the same time are promoting this issue of putting more guns in the hands of people who don't have to have permits. Uh, and yet the Republicans don't, don't even speak about this as a, a seeming contradiction. Yeah, well, I think that they are looking at it from an issue of freedom, as well as, as Greg has already outlined, I mean, campaign promises are campaign promises to some people. They stay true to their word. I think that's what Governor Kemp is trying to hold fast to. But then there's also a body of evidence that there. 19 states have um, this, uh, this, this law. And, uh, I mean, we've got Maine and New Hampshire. They're not exactly southern liberal, I mean, conservative states. And, and they, they have, and I think we should examine whether or not that leads to an increase. Um, Leo, Leo, we just lost your audio. 
Um, we're going to try to get it back uh, as soon as we can. I apologize for technical problems we're experiencing right now. Greg, while we're trying to get Leo back, let, let me ask you to help me, me certainly, and I think some of our listeners as well, understand what's happening here. Um, the, the supporters of this legislation, including uh, Senator Anavitarde, talk about the fact that um, background checks are still in place and, and, and therefore, we don't have to be concerned about uh, permitless handgun carry. I'm confused by all that. Do we have, in fact, a, a law in Georgia that requires background checks that legally keeps guns out of the hands of criminals uh, or not? I'm, it, I find this very confusing. Yeah, and this is, this is I mean, the, the supporters of this measure note that other states have similar uh, reg, uh, regulations uh, in Georgia and, and in other states, you know, there's there's background checks for buying the guns. Um, when it comes to uh, these permits, it's another issue. Um, you know, the current license requirement includes a background check to keep guns from certain people, including convicted felons. So, so those are license requirements as they stand right now. But this would roll back those those restrictions and allow people to bring guns into a number of places where, uh, with, without a permit. Where they can no longer, where they can currently not bring the guns. Um, Leo, we lost you, and I want you to be able to continue your comments about um, my question about what appears to be a contradiction between, you know, advocating on one hand for public safety in the streets and expanding the right to carry a concealed weapon. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I um, was just saying that I think that we just need to be a little bit more academic about the question and study the 1920 states that have the same law. Um, and I, you know, I mentioned New Hampshire and Maine. Uh, those aren't exactly states that, you know, one would traditionally characterize as just heavy, heavy Republican states, but yet they have constitutional carry. And, uh, and I think so there's a body of evidence there, and we should look at those and we should go accordingly. All right, um, let's uh, move on. There's no reason, by the way, to think that this bill, uh, Greg, won't pass the Senate easily. And when it comes across to the House, <clears throat> Greg, I don't imagine it's going to— I can imagine that uh, Democrats like Mary Margaret Oliver will oppose it. But, Greg, this bill is on a fast track for passage uh, and, and yeah. to get to the governor's desk. Yeah? Yeah, a grease track. This is going to pass in, probably in some form or fashion. It might not be exactly this, this legislation— the House might have its own measure that, that comes up, um, and there's all, all, all sorts of politics involved in that. But um, this is the priority of the governor, and both Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan and House Speaker David Ralston have both endorsed the idea. So it's, it's, it's going down that path. Mary Margaret, I, I, I <laughs> made the point yesterday on the show when this came up briefly. It reminds me of the old days when Roy Barnes, long before he was governor, was a member of the state house. He used to keep an old wooden train whistle in his desk. And when a bill was on a fast track for passage, Roy would duck under the desk and blow the whistle to indicate that a bill was being railroaded through the house. If he were back uh, right now, he'd be blowing that whistle, I think. I'm afraid he would be. Uh, I remember uh, Sonny died right around midnight last year. The speaker... Ralston refused to call the permitless gun bill. And it just further evidence that this is an election year. This is an election year message. And although there's rhetoric coming from the Republicans about public safety, this is a step back 
Does anybody follow the road rage <laughs> videos that are daily before us? Uh, it is it is absolutely terrifying to see some. It's another fact of social media is that I can watch road rage video of people shooting people on I twenty. And does anybody watch those videos and not say this is a bad system <laughs> for public safety? All right. Well, we will continue to watch that bill as it uh, moves through uh, the legislature. Um, Greg, let's talk a little bit about uh, several uh, measures that appear to be moving forward that could change the composition of uh, how Gwinnett County, Athens-Clark County, possibly even Cobb County are represented on their county commissions. And, And let me just preface this by saying we're certainly used to legislative uh, map drawing that favors one party over the other this right now obviously republicans congressional map drawing that does the same but it what we're dealing with right now is republicans in the legislature who want to oversee the process of redistricting commission seats in such a way that commissions like athens clark county a preponderance a, a dominantly democratic county uh, could have a complete a change in representation on the commission. Same thing uh, is uh, happening in Gwinnett County. Tell us a little bit about this. Yeah, and, and, and you know, we, we spent so much time, uh, you know, for obvious reasons, focusing on the state legislative redistricting, congressional redistricting. But this is the secondary process that's it's also very important, but is not getting nearly enough attention. Um, and what's happening is that uh, lawmakers, local delegations, have the chance to redraw a commission, county commission, and local lines as well. And um, in, especially in Gwinnett County and Cobb County, where Democrats recently shifted the balance of power towards their party in recent elections, may now have the majority. But what you're seeing is Republicans who, of course, still have the overall majority of the state legislature, um, try to circumvent the normal process. And rather than these commission lines going through local legislation, which is usually the, the path they, they traditionally always go through, um, you're seeing um, Republican, very powerful Republican lawmakers um, preempt that process and say, instead of going through the local legislation, it should go through the overall state. So basically, I know that's complicated, but what it means is that Republicans will get their chance to redraw the district lines um, through the entire legislature rather than going through uh, the local delegations. And in Gwinnett County, that means that instead of a 5-0 county commission, um, there could be a, a, at least one district drawn for a Republican to win. In Cobb County, you could see where it's much more closely divided. You could see the entire balance of power shifted back to the GOP. And in Athens, where Republicans actually do have control of the local delegation, you could see um, multiple progressive members of the county commission uh, get basically ousted because their districts were remembered. Yesterday morning at 8 o'clock in the Government Affairs Committee, where I sit and have for a good number of years, there was an exercise of raw power. That's kind of shocking to some of the freshmen to see this kind of raw power on the issue of Gwinnett County County Commissions. Uh, again, procedurally unprecedented and probably against the rules, Rule 18.2, according to uh, Gwinnett Delegation Chair Sam Park, a local bill for Gwinnett County commissioners was pulled off the local calendar and in with about, I think about 15 hours notice, including eight hours of those overnight, 
uh, a new map was presented by uh, Bonnie Rich to the Government Affairs Committee without a motion, without a substitute motion. All of a sudden, we're looking at Bonnie Rich's uh, new map, which nobody's seen, of course, and passes out of Government Affairs as a, as a general bill. This is the kind of raw power exercise that is sometimes shocking to people. It's not shocking to me. It's painful to me, but it's not shocking to me. And what message is that sending to the Gwinnett County 1 million voters? I think uh, President Biden won Gwinnett County by over 60%. What message is that sending to the Gwinnett County voters about the opportunity and the desire to exercise raw power against traditional rules, against traditional local uh, decision-making, and pass a bill that in no way had seen the light of day. Leo, uh, one of the things that's interesting about the Gwinnett County map that Mary Margaret is talking about having been presented uh, surprisingly by surprise yesterday morning is that it attempts to carve out a what could be a Republican district up in north Gwinnett County, where the sponsor, Bonnie Rich, suggests uh, there are probably more Republican votes that, that voters that need to be representative. Uh, represented. I, I thought it was somewhat ironic that in making her argument, she said that 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 the that the North Gwinnett district seemed to be heavily gerrymandered. Well, Leo, it was Republicans who drew those lines, and so if if suddenly that those lines are being drawn in such a way that uh, Republicans aren't getting what they want from voters, uh, they just change the lines. Well, I mean, that is the thought that's being made, unfortunately. And I, no, I'm not shocked by it. I mean, this is about legislative control. This is about control of the state uh, lawmaking processes. And that's it's just what it is. I and mean, as Americans, we have to decide whether we want, you know, minority rule or majority rule and how we want it. That's the democracy process that we have to argue. Um, but, Leo, um, in fact, I'd love everybody to weigh in on this because this leads us to another issue we're going to talk about, and that's the this uh, push for an independent Buckhead. What we're starting to see is that, uh, as Greg Bluestein first was to, was the one to mention, that the power that local delegations have had in the past, because they're closest to their constituents to decide on things like lines being drawn and other matters that are close to the communities is being overridden now by the General Assembly as a whole. It's happening in Gwinnett, happening in Athens-Clark in terms of um, commission seats. And, Leo, you could make the same argument that it's happening in the Buckhead City movement where not a single representative of Buckhead is uh, promoting the notion of an independent Buckhead. And, Leo, uh, you just said it. What do we want? Majority rule, minority rule, where are we headed? <clears throat> yeah, I think that's where we are. We're at this crisis in America. It's, it's been begged upon us because of changing demographics, yes, but it's also being begged upon us because of the nationalization of uh, politics through media. And so people are losing control through something that they're attracted to, <laughs> national politics, but at the same time, they are sometimes feeding that. You know, they're, 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 they're losing their local impact, and that's becoming a problem, too. We really don't know. I mean, local control used to be a Republican thing. And, and as a conservative, I'm a little concerned about it. 
Now, I want to echo what, what Representative Oliver said, though. It is an exercise of raw power, too, right? Um, and and there, were, there were Republicans who woke up in Gwinnett County the day after the election who were stunned that the Democrats swept uh, the commission seats. And look, you know, there's an argument they made, obviously, that, that, uh, that, that Gwinnett Republicans feel like the, the voters in the northernmost part of the county that are more conservative do have a voice. Um, but right now it's going through this, this – uh, they're not going through the conventional process um, to give them that voice. And um, this is something that uh, maybe there needs to be a, a, a broader conversation in the legislature about power sharing and about, about the way you draw these lines and about, about the power of local delegations, because local delegations still have a lot of power. It's just every so often, you know, when it comes to uh, partisan and political issues, where sometimes the, the, the powers that be at the state capitol, um, uh, you know, take away those powers or preempt those powers. And I'm sure Democrats, I'm sure we can look back to uh, episodes um, when Democrats had control of them doing the same thing to preempt local control among Republicans. Yeah, I mean, we, we do know that happens. And Mary Margaret, that was what I was going to ask you, actually. Uh, th- there's a way in which this sort of reminds me of the issue uh, uh, that the United States Senate uh, faces right now, where uh, Democrats are talking about maybe removing the filibuster rule so they could pass some of the things like Build Back Better that they want to get through or, or other measures. And uh, and Republicans are saying, well, be careful what you wish for, because when we're back in control, we'll take advantage of it. And and if, if, if Democrats win the governor's office in the fall, if they manage to win uh, majorities in, in the more likely in the House and the Senate, if it's possible, it, there's no reason to think that Democrats might not move down a similar track. If Stacey Abrams wins, which is, is, is my hope, and the House and the Senate remain in Republican control, I want to have a front row seat for that. And I do have a front row seat today, so I hope I get to come back to that. I think it would be enormously fascinating to see an opportunity for shared power particularly if somebody with the skills of sharing power of Stacey Abrams is in the governor's office. Uh, shared power seems to be the way most, um, most states prefer their, their state legislature. We have never had many any opportunities. There was one period, um, 2002, 2003, when the House was Democrat and the Senate of Georgia was Republican and Sonny Perdue was in the governor's office. That was a very brief window. We need an opportunity for some shared power where there'll be more balance. What message are we sending to the voters if we're exercising whatever party it is based on raw power? Let me come back to local messes. Uh, We're going to have a fight today, or we're going to have an opportunity to look at Emanuel Jones's map, which we hadn't seen before, I hadn't seen before, to eliminate the super districts in DeKalb County. That is an internal Democratic fight. We have internal Democratic fights. Um, to what extent, and this is what part of this painful raw power business that's going on, uh, is it about race? Is it about party? Is it about race? Is it about party? And that's the painful, the painful realities of many of the rooms I sit in, local control versus state control. Is it about partisan power? Or is it simply about race? All right. Um, Mary Margaret Oliver gets the last words for the first segment of our show today. We've got a lot more to talk about, including we're going to talk a bit about the Buckhead City movement and the development overnight there uh, that may have a big impact on what happens downtown. And we're also going to uh, turn to Mary Margaret Oliver, who's a, a chief sponsor 
of the bipartisan measure to dramatically expand mental health services in the state of Georgia. We'll do all that and more after we pause for these messages. Mary Margaret Oliver, Leo Smith, Greg Bluestein joined me for uh, today's uh, political rewind. By the day away, uh, today is Political Rewind Newsletter day, uh, day. Later today, the new edition of the newsletter, which I've been putting together on a weekly basis, will be out. If you're not a subscriber, you can become one by going to gpb.org slash newsletters. This one's chock full of interesting and, I hope, important news about politics. But if you're looking for a break from what is about to be an onslaught of TV commercials, you may want to look at one of the items today. I came across a commercial from the movie The Campaign in which Zach Galifianakis uh, does a spoof commercial for his run for Congress. And believe me, it's worth your while to look at it as you prepare for this endless stream of campaign spots we're going to have coming up. Greg Bluestein. So finally, the business community, uh, which has been getting urged by many anti-Buckhead City folks to get involved, has done that. Something like 30 business leaders up there, many of them uh, people you know, who have commercial properties, residential, real estate, and others. I think in the story that you and J.D. Capilouto put together on this said, these people represent like $4.7 billion in real estate uh, in Buckhead. And they've now sent a letter saying, don't do this. It's not going to make us safer. And if you do insist on doing it, we want to be carved out of the new city of Buckhead. Greg, talk to us about this. Yeah, Bill, this was a significant moment in, in the, the, the fight against Buckhead cityhood by the opponents who have really rallied. You know, it took them a while to rally against this. Um, but they, this was, this was a, a major, major, major moment um, because, as you said, this, this was a group of companies, name brands. Um, you had uh, retail giants. You had... Uh, hotels, you had commercial and residential real estate magnets, you had just in, you know, enormous financial institutions all saying the same thing. We don't want any part of Buckhead cityhood. And if you're going to draw a proposed map, keep us out of it. Keep the Buckhead village, keep the heart of the commercial center of Buckhead out of the proposed city of Buckhead. Um, and as you said, re- they represent billions of dollars of investment. They represent tens of millions of dollars of annual tax revenue um, to the city of Atlanta. And among their arguments was it would be more costly, it would be it would provide administrative overlap, it would be public school chaos, and I think to me at least their most potent argument was they felt like it wouldn't reduce crime, it would weaken the city of Atlanta, and and foster even more criminal activity that of course will not stop at any city border. Mary Margaret, I expect good successful business people to do make smart decisions. And this is a smart decision, obviously. The issue of schools and public debt assignments, if a new city of Buckhead was created, has direct impact on the businesses of Buckhead. It's incomprehensible to me, incomprehensible to me, that smart business people would be donating to the Bill White Parade. It is so contrary to where are the public debt assignments and where do the six thousand children that are impacted by a a city of Buckhead go to school. 
the business community needed to step forward, and I think they have. I never thought it would really pass. I thought that the leaders, uh, particularly David Ralston, would simply understand that the litigation and the chaos that would come on the school and the public debt issue from uh, City of Buckhead was way too painful and way too great to gamble. We have a brand for Atlanta that has been valuable to us for 60, 70 years, the city too busy to hate. Carving out Buckhead would be a terrible statement to the world and I think really diminish our brand. And I could talk endlessly about, endlessly, about the litigation issues that would be carried out for years over a possible new city of Buckhead. The big question that still remains, regardless of what happens with this legislation, is Mayor Dickens has to make sure that there are people in Buckhead who feel like they're getting taxation without complete representation, that he has to address their concerns. No matter what those corporate leaders say, the ability to lay down in your front yard and close your eyes and take a nap while reading a book is threatened if safety is an issue. And that has to be addressed by Mayor Dickens. I think he will. Those problems don't go away regardless of how corporations feel. There are people who live there who drive cars down Wyuka and have their cars swallowed up by potholes that ought to be fixed. These are real issues that have been long-lasting, and Buckhead's movement isn't just about the legislative aspect of that. It's about representation, and they deserve that attention. I think the mayor will continue to give it to them. Um, Greg, in your article, you quote Bill White, who uh, Mary Margaret referenced a minute ago. He's the leader of the uh, Buckhead Independence Movement. Uh, and he says this, we are never surprised when corporate opponents throw up a Hail Mary just to make headlines in an attempt to slow our meteoric success. He said that some of the corporations have, quote, worked to undermine and suppress Buckhead's right to vote on its own destiny. Uh, does he make a point there? Are they having meteoric success in terms of raising money, in terms of generating uh, support among residents? Well, I mean, he, he's also known for his sort of Trump-like rhetoric. He, he's trying to sort of channel the former president with his social media messages and the like. But, yeah, they've raised money. Um, and they've gotten significant support from legislative leaders outside of the city of Atlanta. Not a single lawmaker who represents the city of Atlanta or, or Buckhead, for that matter, um, supports this legislation, but there are mostly rural Republicans um, and exurban Republicans. Um, Jeff Mullis uh, made it made a point. He showed up at the, one of the fundraisers for the pro bucket movement and said, "Guys, I don't. <laughs> I'm closer to Tennessee than I am to Atlanta, but I support this measure." So they're not making. Uh, they're not trying to hide that fact that their supporters come from far outside. And as I said, just like with with the gun bill that we talked about earlier on the show, this has become a political wedge issue too. Because what was one of the first issues that that David Perdue uh, publicly supported after getting into the governor's race, it was Buckhead Cityhood. So it puts Governor Kemp in a tight spot because he doesn't want to give any more ammunition and ammunition to David Perdue. Uh, but you know, it, it's also something that maybe. Uh, some of the advisors around him don't think is a good policy idea. So he's he's been saying publicly neutral on this so far. You, you know, Greg, um, I'm glad you mentioned David Perdue committing to uh, supporting an independent city of Buckhead. I would love, and you're you're the guy who digs out such great information. I'd love to see what internal polling is showing the Kemp campaign about the Buckhead city. Uh, movement and whether or not it's an issue that they better weigh in on one way or the other right now. Um, 
because here's what I find sort of surprising. I understand Kemp's being silent for now. I don't quite understand why Ralston is. It just strikes me that the speaker playing it close to the vest, maybe he's thinking about it in terms of having leverage on another issue down the road. But I, I, he, on our show the last week or two weeks ago, he just wouldn't talk about it in any substantive way. Yeah, my, my, Bill, my hunch is that the speaker will end up opposing it, but we'll see. Um, but I think with the governor, it's a good point you make up, you, you bring up. I haven't seen the internal polling on, on, on Buckhead, but I think it's a fundraising issue, too. Because right now, if the governor's uh, neutral, he can go and raise lots of money from the pro and the anti-crowd without alienating either one of them. And, uh, you know, we just saw Stacey Abrams' numbers this morning. So, so we know that if you're in the governor's Kemp's camp, you, want to, you, need to, you need to keep as many fundraising lines open as you possibly can. Yeah, by the way, what's that number? I want to give Mary Margaret a chance on Ralston, but what was that Abrams number? She raised a ton of dough. More than $9.2 million in two months. <laughs> she outpaced Governor Kemp, who, who raised seven, uh, who raised seven-ish um, over six months. So uh, she has $7 million in the bank, and that's after, again, just two months. Pretty good. Mary before, Margaret, weigh in on what? As we've said before, this is an election year. And Buckhead is part of an election year messaging operation and fundraising operation. But I suspect this isn't something obviously he shared with me, but I'm guessing uh, David Ralston's strategic about all that and knows that it's a bad idea that will hurt businesses in the metropolitan Atlanta area. And really, it's irresponsible to pass it. That's what my guess is. And we'll wait and see if I'm wrong. All right, um, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back. Uh, We'll have plenty of time to talk about a couple of other really important issues facing uh, the state, facing the legislature, facing the country. This is Political Rewind. You know, Greg Bluestein, as the election year ramps up, um, we don't have a really firm policy on Political Rewind about playing campaign commercials. Um, I I wonder what our listeners think about it. For the most part, I think we probably shouldn't do it unless there's something really exceptional, extraordinary, meaningful about a given commercial. And I say all of that, and please, if you're a listener, weigh in on this. But Greg, of course, I say all this because I think we have an example of one of those exceptional commercials. Uh, We have uh, the first David Perdue TV commercial. Uh, What's interesting about it, of course, is uh, David Perdue is a minor player. There's a photograph of him in it. It's all Donald Trump looking into the camera. And as one of our panelists uh, said on the show yesterday, Steve Fennessy from GPB said, when it starts, he almost thought it was a Saturday Night Live opening uh, scene. Let's listen. A message from President Trump. The Democrats walked all over Brian Kemp. He was afraid of Stacey the Hoax Abrams. Brian Kemp let us down. We can't let it happen again. David Perdue, an America First conservative outsider, is the only candidate for governor endorsed by President Donald Trump. David Perdue is an outstanding man. He's tough, he's smart, he has my complete and total endorsement. Vote for David Perdue. Uh, Greg Bluestein, uh, so the Perdue campaign is all about Trump. Uh, what's interesting, though, also is this new tagline, Stop Sa- Stacy, Save Georgia, which apparently is kind of the theme of the statewide tour he's launched. 
Yeah, uh, you know, his argument um, has been twofold. One, one is that he's the only Trump-endorsed candidate, and his entire campaign is sort of hinged around that. It is the opening of every campaign stop he has. He'll now be playing this TV ad every, every campaign stop he goes on. Um, and secondly, it's that only he can defeat Stacey Abrams because Republicans have lost trust in Brian Kemp. Of course, the, the governor has a, has a different view of that. Um, but that is where he's basing his argument around. And, and, and I was at his first uh, campaign stop yesterday on his recent statewide tour, his most recent statewide tour. Where he said, look, I like Brian Kemp. He's a nice guy. Um, you know, I love his family, but he can't beat Stacey Abrams. <laughs> so that is basically his argument that by and he understands the paradox of of saying uh, that by ripping the party up, apart, I will be uniting it. Uh, yet he still says that. Well, yeah, Leo, he also uh, says that he's the only one who can beat Stacey Abrams. But in running a primary campaign against Brian Kemp and trying to rally the Trump supporters around him, well, how does he expect them to turn to Brian Kemp to beat Stacey Abrams in the fall, Leo? And no kidding. I mean, that's just logic. And you want to, you didn't do a very good job against John Ossoff, David Perdue, either. I mean, let's just get real about that. I and mean, he has much smaller name recognition than Stacey Abrams. Um, and then the other issue is is that the whole stop Stacey thing is not actually that's a former uh, that that pack and that effort is being led by Jeremy Brand and Ryan Mahoney and the, 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 the former campaign staffers of Governor Kemp. So he has Purdue has no originality in this thing. It's just really kind of a nonsensical campaign just based on fealty to Trump and. I don't understand it. I think it lessens our opportunity as conservatives to have conservative leadership in the state house. And uh, this is a real problem for for Republicans. Mary Margaret? I'll take a position on Purdue versus Kemp, obviously, but it's uh, the polling data that came out of the AJC last week that said 42% or was it over 50%? It was very significant would not respect, uh, would not think that an endorsement by Trump was significant. They were talking to Republican voters. That surprised me a little bit. David Perdue was a pretty bad candidate last year, pretty bad, with unlimited money. (laughs) So we are entering an election year with unlimited money, unlimited money by lots of candidates, and uh, there are going to be some more examples of bad candidates making bad decisions, is my guess. All right. Um, thank you for that. And clearly we're going to be watching that campaign, uh, the race between those two play out in the months ahead. Um, but Mary Margaret, let's take a few minutes. Um, you for many years have been a champion of expanding mental health services in the state of Georgia. It's been one of your primary issues for, I think, decades is a fair way to put it. And now David Ralston Uh, has uh, tapped you to be one of the lead sponsors of a bipartisan effort to do just that. And and I want to, while we have you on the show, we've, of course, talked about it a bit, but this is the first time you've been on the show since the bill has actually been introduced. And I think it's important that you give us some uh, key provisions from what you're trying to do. Thank you very much. This is David Ralston's bill, and he tapped Todd Jones from Forsyth County and me to be the what he called the co-pilots for this project. This is not um, a message bill. It's not make a point. It's not pay attention to me bill. This is a 74-page bill that details in a lot of dense ways mental health reform. And it came through a fascinating process of the Behavioral Health Commission 
uh, chaired by Kevin Tanner. So the, the real work came through uh, specialty subcommittees who, not through legislators, but special uh, expertise. Of, uh, Brenda Fitzgerald was a subcommittee chair, uh, and she uh, has been chairing and bringing forth the parity provisions. There's been a fast-moving ball federally and state. At the end of the Trump administration, we had significant new mandates to treat mental health illness the same way you do physical illness in terms of insurance reimbursement. That's huge. That is a huge lift, and we are bringing Georgia in compliance with the federal mandates about parity, and we are also uh, making it more enforceable. Many of the provisions of House Bill 1013, which is the bill, David Ralston's bill, uh, relate to entitlements that people have, children particularly, uh, have uh, entitlements to Medicaid services under the early periodic screening EPSDT, under special education. Uh, We are not in compliance with funding mental health across Georgia. And from the beginning of this intense drill-down effort, we have been in contact with the governor's budget office and with major funding proposals. This is also, I want to point out, about mental health and substance abuse. The reason this is timely right now, obviously, Speaker Ralston's leadership is critical, but members of the General Assembly know, we know, from our family, from our community, from our church or synagogue experiences, substance abuse is on the rise, suicide is on the rise. I went to uh, Jeff Parker's funeral on Saturday where his CEO of MARTA, the family has chosen to acknowledge that death was suicide. And the widow, beautiful young one, turns to the political folks sitting in the pews of St. Luke's Episcopal Church and says, pass mental health reform. That's the message that individual legislators are hearing across Georgia. They know the families in their district who can't get services. They know that children particularly can't get services. We have workforce provisions of the bill. We have funding provisions. We have, most importantly, in some of our federal compliance requirements, data collection that's going to be turned back to the insurance industry and told to them, you are not in compliance with basic elements of parity. It's complex. It's detailed. It's a privilege to work on a bill that's really going to help Georgians. Um, Georgia uh, lags far behind the rest of the country in terms of medical, uh, mental health services, obviously. Um, Greg, on the show a couple weeks ago, Speaker Ralston said, as far as he was concerned, this is the most important thing he will do this session. Uh, You know, we can talk all we want about uh, banning CRT, banning books, uh, new abortion uh, restrictions that are being introduced, all of those hot button issues. Uh, but this is a true bipartisan effort, Greg, to finally do something. And and it's I said that on the show um, when this bill was first introduced, it, it it's also important for us as Georgians to see that our legislature can work, you know, cooperatively, collegially on something as important as this, Greg. Yeah, amen. This this is a game changer. You know, we spend a lot of our time talking about these divisive partisan issues, but this is not one of them. This is something that has the support of legislative leaders, of Democrats, of, of Republicans. 
And, and, and Speaker Ralston on your airwaves echoed what Representative Oliver just said, which is he's tired of telling desperate families that they have no treatment options. Um, as Representative Oliver said, we're in um, you know new territory when it comes to um, uh, mental health in Georgia. From April 2020 to April 2021, there was an increase of 36 percent overdose deaths. Um, rural suicides are up by 8 percent. Uh, Georgia's crisis line saw an increase of about a quarter in terms of calls, texts, and chats from Georgians looking for help. Um, so I know that lawmakers around the state are hearing about this at their town halls, in their community meetings, in the grocery stores of, of families who are, who are looking for, for answers, and this is starting to give them some. Leo, I know this has been a big issue from you for you as well. <clears throat> oh, it's so important at a time where we see so much divisiveness in America that we're dealing with so much as far as uh, our resilience related to pandemics and the social divisiveness that's going on. I mean, look, I mean, all the legislation that's going on around the nation and in our state house, there's so much cognitive dissonance about it that this legislation is a no-brainer. <laughs> you know, we got to have it. And uh, it's great to see it. Our diamond is coming out of the rough. And thank you, Mary Margaret Oliver. Thank uh, Representative Tanner. All, everybody, I'm just so happy that this is happening. And, I mean, this is how we make us strong to be able to actually be more reasonable about how we deal with things, about the fragility of people and dealing with truth, about facing our histories. All of this needs strong, strong, strong people, and that's what this is about. It is awesome. Leo, while the ball is in your court, I'd like to ask you to give us your thoughts on the bomb threats the spate of bomb threats that we've seen at historically black colleges and universities, and I think I think 16 schools across the country, two of them just yesterday here in Georgia, Fort Valley State and Spelman College uh, received bomb threats. The day before that, Albany State, another HBCU, got a bomb threat. Now, the FBI is investigating. In none of these instances was a device of any sort found but the terror, and we don't know anything about where these are coming from, obviously. Nevertheless, they have people in those universities uh, on edge and fearful about how they may be getting targeted. Leo? You know, there have been some reports of uh, assignment um, where these are coming from. I'm not going to give credence to those reports right here on air until we get more information. But the issue is these reports are coming from people who have fear in their eyes with lack of knowledge. And that is the greater issue. Yes, the students, the faculty at these HBCUs, the kids that, whether they're at a Cobb County school, McKeachum has had some issues, uh, the schools around the state. Th this terroristic threat is un-American. Uh, it is not patriotism at all. We need to read this stuff out. And addressing mental health is part of this, as a matter of fact. That's one of the solutions here. And uh, from Vic Reynolds at GBI, I'm sure everybody's going to be on this. Um, this is an issue that all Americans who truly love all Americans will be concerned about. Bomb threats are uh, part of the fear we have now, whether bomb threats at, at elementary schools, high schools. Uh, it's very, very, very frightening to have a courthouse evacuation, which I've had uh, more than once when I've been in the courthouse. Bomb threats are accelerating, they are more visible, and they're more frightening, and it's something we have to pay attention to. Yeah, and, and uh, let's only hope 
that this is something that comes and goes quickly. We'll watch as it develops. Um, we're almost out of time, but Greg Bluestein, I you know, we all know what a terrific political reporter you are. Um, we have great political people on our staff as well. Um, but none of you have been able to do the job that 538 has done uh, in a story they released on today, Groundhog's Day. And Greg, I'd just like to read you the lead from 538. We know 538 has some of the best data crunchers in the country when it comes to analyzing elections and predicting elections. But now they've turned their attention to Groundhog's Day. And here's the lead of their story. After dozens of grueling hours of investigation, 538 can confirm that Punxsutawney Phil is a charlatan. A groundbreaking analysis has revealed that the Pennsylvania-based groundhog who makes annual predictions about the arrival of spring is not nearly as reliable a prognosticator as those close to him claim. Greg, after their analysis, 538 has learned that only a third of the time since 1880-something has Punxsutawney Phil correctly predicted whether we're going to have six more weeks of winter. Where are you, Bluestein? How did they unearth these findings? <laughs> I, I've always known you as an imposter, so I'm glad it's finally been uh, exposed to the sunlight. <laughs> um, what's interesting about this, Mary Margaret, and I never knew this before, but apparently Punxsutawney Phil actually speaks his prediction. It's not just that he sees or doesn't see a shadow. He speaks his prediction to the president of the Punxsutawney Groundhog Club in a language called Groundhog Ease, a language which only the president of the club is able to understand and then has to translate it for the masses. You know, what's interesting about this, Mary Margaret, is the question of given, given global uh, climate change, rather, uh, do we want to hope that we're going to start spring early this year? <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to spring and more flowers, and I don't care about uh, the groundhog thing. Just don't care. Sorry. Okay. Okay. But you, you don't want to say you don't care about climate change. You're going to get notes if you're not careful about climate that. Climate change, <laughs> I care about. The groundhog, I don't care about. Thank you. Okay. We're out of time uh, for today's Political Rewind. Mary Margaret Oliver, thank you. And thanks for filling us in on on the mental health measure. Leo, thank you very much, Leo Smith and Greg Bluestein. We're so happy to have had you all on this show for a terrific conversation. Lots to discuss, and you got through a bunch of really significant issues. Um, We'll be back again with another show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care. Stay healthy, wear your mask when you're around a lot of other people, and go get a booster shot if you haven't had one so far. See everybody as soon as possible. Bye-bye.